0: wrong in this situation. He took a pitch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. Heart attack. We used heart attack. Please. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Better done without that. The credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the German's bomb Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers. We know it. Ask me about my win. I'm going to explain right now why Steve Cohen, the owner of the New York Mets, is basically in a catch-22, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Now, obviously, he has the prestigious ability to buy whatever he wants. The guy's worth $20 billion. He could have whatever he wants. He could fly across the world to see a player if he wants to. He's got a private jet. All of these different accolades and things that the majority of the other people don't have as an advantage. But that advantage in many situations is used against them. The expectation is that when it comes to the Mets payroll, it should be unlimited. Most fans feel that way. They feel, hey, he's got all this money. He should be able to pay the most money to get all the best players and therefore should be able to get every player that he wants. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. If he does not get any player, it's going to be assumed that he didn't offer the player enough money. Uh, you have the money, so why wouldn't you be able to just give the player more money? And then if he gets the player, the perception is, oh man, he's just buying players, buying, trying to buy a championship, And all the examples will be pointed to why there's more situations that don't work than do. He is in a tough spot because if he wants to get a player, financially, he should be able to get that player. But, as I've mentioned in my previous show and some other shows before, when it comes to the lore of coming to New York, number one, that's lost its luster that esteem that's out there that the New York Yankees try to use and it looks like they tried to use it most recently for in their pursuit of Yoshinobu Yamamoto that mystique of New York and New York being the mecca and wanting to play in New York is not there anymore. And you know the uh, there's other elements that make it very tough when you just have the money. The assumption is that you're just going to be able to give the player the most money. Now how much does it take for a player to come to you that doesn't necessarily want to come to you and i'll use yamamoto as an example as it pertains to the mets because i'm pretty convinced now we could be wrong could money have bought yamamoto to the mets at some point the 325 million dollar offer that steve cohen made that yamamoto's agent took to the dodgers and the dodgers accepted now, the, the fact that he didn't take that back to the Mets and say, hey, can you beat it, was well, pretty much a sign that he didn't really want to play for the Mets. But we, we talk about the fact that money talks. How much money would it take to get Yamamoto to sign with the Mets? Would it have been $345 million, $365 million, $385 million, $400 million? and I'll use this number 434 million which would be for let's say if it was 10 years or 12 years or whatever you know depending on if it was 10 years it would be the most average annual value per season and the largest contract by over 100 million when it comes to a pitcher contract now is that fair to the rest of baseball no but the question is if if you're in a Mets Would you offer that to him and totally attempt to break any sort of precedence that's been set when it comes to the paying of players? And if you're Yamamoto, would you accept more than $100 million more from the Mets to go to a team that you don't want to go to? I think all those things have to be thought about. The thought that anybody is just going to go out there and just buy players and just say, Listen, I'm going to reset the market. We're going to make him an offer he can't refuse. You know, the Godfather reference gets brought out there so many times when it comes to uh somebody that has money. Hey, you know, how are you gonna turn down this amount of money to come here? Like I said, there's a certain line, I believe, that would have been drawn to say, all right, well, if the Dodgers aren't gonna pay me that and the Mets are gonna give me that much more, I'll take it. But like I said, if he gives it to him, then it's, hey, he bought the player. Mets fans may be happy, but it may not be good for Major League Baseball. And then if he doesn't have an offer that's high enough, you say, well, why? I I don't think the guy could win no matter what. And, you know, we'll see what ends up happening the rest of the offseason. But you know, I certainly don't blame him for not coming to an agreement with Yoshinobu Yamamoto. And I also don't blame the Yankees. The Yankees were pretty, uh, I think they etched their toes in the sand. They said, hey, we're not going to pay you more than we're paying Garrett Cole, either total contract or average annual value. And the Yankees have gotten a little tougher. The Yankees don't have this endless bank account, and they're not going to come up with an offer that they don't believe is justified. So I think when it came down to the $325 million, I think the Yankees made it pretty clear that, no, they weren't going to do that. And I don't blame him. Like I said, you have a value of what you think the player's worth. And if what he ends up getting exceeds it by a mile, then I think you could walk away saying you did the best that you could. So there's two things when it comes to the NFL that I wanted to touch on. Because I believe uh, when it comes to the National Football Conference and the postseason, as it's we're only a couple of weeks away from Wild Weekend, I think there's two more regular season weeks and then three weeks from yesterday or three weeks from Saturday will be the start of the NFL playoffs. The NFC, I think, is going to be very interesting. We've watched the Philadelphia Eagles, a little, maybe a little bit of a getting to the Super Bowl hangover. But listen, I think there's vulnerability out there. I think there's more tape out there than it has ever been in, in the world of sports, let alone the NFL. And I do think teams have done a better job of saying, hey, this is how we can get at them from an offensive standpoint. Their defense hasn't been that good. Jalen Hurts is not 100%. So I think the Eagles are vulnerable. You watch them barely pull out a win over the Giants. A game that you never really got the sense that the Giants were ever going to win. But if you've watched Eagle-Giants games in the past, especially at Lincoln Financial Field, the Eagles usually have their way with the Giants. Didn't so much do that. They've had some rough games this year. They've had some games where, you know, In the past, last year, the year before, this is not the level that they've they've been playing. So I think the national media is going to look at them as a little bit vulnerable. Um, the Dallas Cowboys, who've had some good games, they certainly are a much different team at home than they are on the road. And the San Francisco 49ers, coming off of a loss to the Baltimore Ravens, they're good. I think they may be considered by some the best team in that conference. And then there's also the Detroit Lions, the resurgent Lions who are finally making the playoffs, won their first division for the first time in 30 years. I think the NFC is going to be a little more wide open and it gets credit for. And you may say, well, sure, if it's just those four teams, you may consider it wide open. I think it's more wide open for that. There's two teams that I believe can not only win a playoff game, but I think can make an effort. A possibility, a shot, an opportunity to get to the a- a- NFC Championship game, and the first ones the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, I was talking about this a couple weeks ago. I'm sure there's a lot more people on the bandwagon right now. Baker Mayfield's had two almost perfect games, you know, as a quarterback, perfect passer rating. Two weeks ago, was dominant again in in their in their victory this past week. They're probably going to win that division. Yeah, you know, there's a little bit of a chance that the Saints can do it. The Falcons aren't ruled out yet, but it looks like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are the best team in that division, and I think a lot of it has to do with the performance of Baker Mayfield. A little time has gone by. He's gotten used to that offense, and I think we're really starting to see what I've seen from day number one when he was the first overall pick taken out of Oklahoma by the Cleveland Browns. I thought the Browns made a mistake by committing themselves to Deshaun Watson, not that Deshaun Watson couldn't play, not that Deshaun Watson isn't a franchise quarterback, but I believe that Baker Mayfield is going to be better over the course of time, and we'll see how it ends up working out. I've basically put this point out there, and I've said this. I said this last year. I said Baker Mayfield's going to have a resurgence at some point. I pointed to the game when he was playing for the Los Angeles Rams last year, and they beat up the Denver Broncos. If, if he's playing in a good system, has some good weapons around him, you get him a little bit of protection, just like the majority of good quarterbacks in the NFL, you get them the right players around you, they're going to be successful. I don't think we've seen the best of Baker Mayfield yet. And I think if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers make it to the postseason, they win the division, they got a home playoff game, whether they're playing Dallas or Philadelphia, I think they can not only win that home playoff game, but they can win a game in the division round two and get to the NFC championship. The other team that I wouldn't rule out and I think has been playing better football over the course of the last couple of weeks is the Los Angeles Rams. Remember, this is a team not that far removed from a Super Bowl victory themselves just a couple of years ago. They still got Matthew Stapper. They still got Sean McVay. They still got a handful of the players that they've sacrificed draft pick after draft pick where they don't have first or second round draft picks for seemingly forever. This is a team that I think is bouncing back. I think their little hangover that they had from winning the Super Bowl a couple of years ago is over. And I also think that there is that kind of not a lot of attention being paid to them which works in their favor. And Matthew Stafford's looked pretty good over the past handful of weeks. Cooper Cup's healthy. They got a system that has been proven to work. I wouldn't rule out the Los Angeles Rams, and I wouldn't be shocked at all as if it, if it could be worked out. The two teams with the one and two seeds in the, uh, in the NFC or the one and three seeds as they get to the division round get knocked off by both Tampa Bay and Los Angeles. And I'll pull up this audio, we'll play it for you if it turns out to be right. But wouldn't that be crazy? A Buccaneers-Rams-NFC championship game, which I don't think is that far from the realm of possibility. As we jump into the DeLorean, crank it up to 88 miles an hour and go back to saving sports history. This is the point of the show where I talk about all things that happened in the past and all things that have happened in a world of sports on December 26th, which today is December 26th, 2023. So we're going to, like I said, jump in said DeLorean, go back to the year of 1908. And Jack Johnson wins the heavyweight championship by knocking out Tommy Burns. Now, police ended up having to stop this fight. It looks like one of those that could have gone forever. For those of you that aren't familiar with boxing at that time, um, it was right On the cusp of bare knuckles, just having gloves, um, no limit to the amount of rounds you can go. And Jack Johnson, by becoming the heavyweight champion, was the first African-American to ever win the heavyweight championship. Tommy Burns lost for the first time after defending the title 11 previous times. 1919, George Herman Ruth was sold from the Boston Red Sox to the New York Yankees for, of course, $125. $1,000, the price, to fund, no, no, no net. And obviously we know how that turns out. I do want to throw this point in there because a lot of people say, hey, it was the worst move in the history of sports franchises and certainly um, was basically a transfer of power from the Boston Red Sox, who had fought one five World Series championships from 1903 to 1918 to the New York Yankees and, of course, what they became as the juggernaut after that. Babe Ruth was a good pitcher. I don't think he was a Hall of Fame pitcher. Babe Ruth, the all-time great hitter, wasn't really identified yet. He hit a little bit. He was a pitcher that could hit, but wasn't known as a dominant power hitter. Now, of course, the live ball era was about to start with home runs and stuff like that, led by Babe Ruth. But at the time of this trade, if we were going to go, no hindsight whatsoever it's probably not as big of a deal as it turns out to be because of the circumstances and what Ruth ends up becoming. 1943, the Chicago Bears win their sixth NFL championship with a 41-21 victory over the Washington Redskins. 1954, the Cleveland Browns beat the Detroit Lions 56-10 to win the NFL championship. One year later, 1955, the Browns beat the, uh, the Los Angeles Rams, 38-14, to 14, winning their second consecutive NFL championship, their third in five years. They joined the NFL in 1950. They won in 1950, 1954, 1955. I'm sorry. So it's, you're looking at three times in six years. But they were the founding members of the All-American Football Conference. That eight-team league that existed from 1946 to 1949 and led by coach Paul Brown and quarterback Otto Graham, they won that league's championship all four years. So you're talking about seven championships in a 10-year period, something that we didn't even see the New England Patriots do. They won seven Super Bowls. They won six Super Bowls in 20 years. Pretty friggin' amazing. I don't think we look at the Browns for being as great of an all-time NFL organization as they are because of the hard times that they've fallen upon in the last 30 years or 40 years, including a handful of seasons not even having a team. 1960, Philadelphia Eagles win the NFL championship over the Green Bay Packers, winning 17-13. to What stands out about this, this is Vince Lombardi. If you look behind me, Vince Lombardi standing there celebrating one of his championships. The only time he lost in a championship game during his coaching career. And, of course, after that, the Packers would win themselves five championships, including the, last, the first two Super Bowls in a seven-year stretch. 1964, the AFL championship. The Buffalo Bills beat the San Diego Chargers 20-7. to Exactly one year later to the day, 1965. The Bills beat the Chargers 23 to nothing. The only two championships that the Bills have in the history of their franchise. A lot of people look at them and they say, hey, they're 0-4 and in the Super Bowl era, which is true. But they won two championships, back-to-back championships, when, you know what? The AFL was its own league. The two leagues hadn't merged yet. It would happen a couple years later. So the Buffalo Bills, the two championships that they have. If you're a diehard Buffalo Bills fan, you... Absorb this, you cherish it, you remember those years. I'm a Houston Oilers fan. I got two plaques up in my room over here honoring the 1960 and 1961 Houston Oilers AFL championships because you know what? At the time, that's all they could win. There was no Super Bowl at that moment. So honor and respect the Bills of 1964 and 1965, who won the AFL championship, 1991 Longtime Pittsburgh Steelers coach Chuck Knoll retires. Um, birthday is on this day, the 26th of December. Carlton Fisk was born on this day in 1947. Of course, all-time great catcher. Shortstop Ozzie Smith, born on this day in 1954. Um, 1989, we lost. Hockey Hall of Famer Doug Harvey, great defenseman, six-time Stanley Cup champion for the Montreal Canadiens. 1994, uh, a very underrated and dominant pitcher for the New York Yankees, Allie Reynolds, passed away on this day in 1994. One of the best defensive linemen and uh, pass rushers in the history of the National Football League, Reggie White, died on this day in 2004. And Nuxie, the greatest pitcher to ever throw a knuckleball in the history of Major League Baseball, 300-game winner Phil Necro, passed away on this day in 2020. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Iwish's Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by two ways. One passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. If you're interested in hearing me flap my yapmouth, mouth, you can check me out on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music. Of course, videos on YouTube. Search John Pielli and Passball Show. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. Chris Bryant was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. In my apartment. Smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on little bit of my life. I may come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. It'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect horrors. And hoarders are gonna be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude a dude another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as the manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. <laughs> side of the spectrum they're on. Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if, if you were to fan of a team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing out. They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You're damn well right. Better give him a contract extension. you damn well right. Better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion.